I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey listeners, just a heads up. This episode contains a couple brief descriptions of sex because we talked to porn actor Ty Mitchell. Just be aware that may be triggering, titillating, who knows? Here we go. Trina, we are six feet apart in the studio. This is our new reality. It's the new world order. (laughs) Have you been? Isn't it so weird to ask that question anymore? Like, we're still so socially trained to be like, how are you expecting someone just to say fine? Right. But no one's fine. <laughs> we are not fine. I mean, I'm not fine. I've been thinking about you a lot in this moment because it's all of your worst fears coming together. Yeah. I think, like, being your friend over the years, I, re- I realized that your fear is really the fear of social breakdown. Yeah. It's really the fear of society not really being able to work for everyone anymore. Yeah. Well, I really regret watching The Handmaid's Tale a year and a half ago. Um, I regret reading every dystopian novel I've ever read in my life. So last week, like, when this sort of really started to hit us here in Canada, I sort of spiraled into, like, these dystopian worst-case scenario imaginings, and I really freaked myself out, you know? Um, But then I spoke to a friend of mine, like, whose whole family is scientists, and he just really calmed me down and brought me back to Earth. So science is grounding you. Yeah. Well, you told me we had a conversation and you were like, I'm only listening to information that is coming from the health officials and the scientists. And yeah. I do think that's important right now. I mean, I I watch almost every press briefing. You know, we have this like really <laughs> iconic doctor here in Quebec where we live. His name is Dr. Aruda. He has a way of conveying you know, social distancing measures that makes it almost, like, enjoyable. Right. He's like, just take time for yourself. You know, do the things you never really have time to do. But that you can only do at home. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like, this is not a moment of, like, great freedom, you know? I like, mean, I, I know. This is not the time to, like, we can't make our wildest dreams come true Okay, right but now. when when I, you know, social distancing is a new concept for all of us, but when I was reading about it, I was like, wow, this is... This is paradise for China Windsor. No, it's not. No? No. Like, I'm definitely an introvert. I definitely need a lot of alone time um, to recharge. But I'm also someone who thrives on connection. I mean, like, that's the basis of mm-hmm. everything that we do as performers. Getting up on a stage is not really about, like, my sort of selfish enjoyment. It's about creating this feeling of connection. And, like, that's when I feel the most alive. Well, that's the part that's very worrisome with this is, like, I love live events, live shows, I have seeing always live said, art. I have yeah. always said this, and I've said it usually in response to the threat of the way, you know, social media and online content threatens live performance. But one thing that I've said many times is that in my mind, like the death of our society and our humanity is the end of live performance Mm -hmm. because it's sort of like one of the last things that still really brings us face to face with one another. 
So right now in this sort of new normal, but it's not really a new normal that we can get used to because it's changing every day. But what's an average day for you right now in the midst of this? Well, the first few days I organized my books. For some reason, that gave me security. And I felt like, oh, okay, I still have the books. Everything's (laughs) going to be all right. Um, And then I live with a roommate. So, you know, like I'm never home, so I never see my roommate. Um, But then we still don't really talk. It's this weird, (laughs) it's this weird like we social distance in the apartment, you know, which and is good. I have my the, own desk. He has his desk. The health experts would be yeah. in agreement. Um, I try to wake up early ish and not like stay in bed. But one thing I did really early on was actually to deactivate my Facebook profile. I kept Messenger, but I deactivated Facebook and deleted Facebook and Instagram from my phone. So mm. I'm actually, you know, watching the news like on television and being like, oh, this is enough. And like kind of being able to feel when I've had enough um, information or, you know, even food. Like it's like I feel more connected to what I need right now in a really strange way. I'm weirdly calm through this. Mm. I don't know. Like I don't have a lot to do, but I'm, uh, you know, I try to write a little bit. I mean, it's not all successful, but I'm really, I'm really sort of taking stock is yeah. really what I'm doing mostly. What are, how are your days? I'm so panicked that I try to sit down and read and I just can't. Like mm-hmm. there's so many thoughts going through my mind. So I surprisingly have been sleeping really well. Maybe this is too dark humor. Like, I'm really saying this jokingly. Maybe we'll just delete it. But every night before I go to bed, I kind of am like, I hope I don't wake up in the morning. <laughs> but you, yeah. But I I do wake up. But it, yeah, I get, I get it. Because when I wake up, I'm surprised I'm waking up. I'm yeah. like, oh, I'm still here. I know. Okay, let's do this. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, but I don't want to m- minimize the seriousness of like suicidal ideation, but that's not what it is for me. It's just more like I'm just so overwhelmed that mm-hmm. I kind of imagine that scene in Sleeping Beauty where Sleeping Beauty falls asleep and then all the good fairies go around the kingdom and put everyone asleep until she wakes up. Right. And I'm like, can we all just be in some kind of like medically induced coma and <laughs> let them fix this and wake us up when it's over? Because <laughs> um, I'm yeah, I can't I can't say that I've been super functional. Um, I mean, it's really hard to be creative. Yeah, for one. I can't. Yeah. I haven't even attempted that yet. But at the same time, to me, it's weirdly an opportunity to get back to basics, to get back to the essential, to like not run around all day. Life before this was a rat race, you yes. know, and I think this has put a stop on the rat race for so many. And I think I think a lot of people are looking at their lives and like, what am I running after? Yes. You know, I th- and I think it proves that a lot of the things like, you know, uh, the nine to five work week, you know, showing up at an office every day maybe is not the way to go in the future. Every aspect of life now is is kind of. Uh, you know, is disturbed. And I, I think it's bad, like 99% bad, but I think there are a few ways that we could be like, oh, wait a second. Like, and I've, for me, that's kind of the silver lining. I believe that so strongly. I think the positive is more than 1%, mm-hmm. you know, and I do believe in, oh God, I don't know how to say this without sounding so corny, but like, I do believe that there is a universal force, you know, right. that is sort of guiding us. Moments, especially like this, come with a message, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that we've spoken about this on the show with our guests. Like we've spoken about, you know, remember talking to Lauren Morelli about gentrification and the way that people in San Francisco can't afford to live there and all these communities have been pushed out. We've spoken about it 
in terms of what's happening here in Montreal, the way that rent prices are going up and up and up everywhere, and people are having to get more than one full-time job just to afford the basics, and the way that corporate greed has ravaged the environment. And it was like, how much longer were we going to be able to keep that up for? This pandemic has the sort of capability to shake the foundations of everything that has been so corrupt. If this means that we just are looked after more and that we are all guaranteed a sort of basic living standard. Would you run for office? Yes. I've been like, <laughs> <laughs> you really sound like someone who should run for office. I feel... You know, you told me, because you're so into astrology. Yeah. For listeners who are into astrology, both Trana and I are Scorpio rising with Scorpio moon. Yeah. So we love a transformation. But one time you told me that my son is in my house of communication. Mm -hmm. And like, so that's where I shine. Like, that's where my strengths are. Is like, I want to get in this situation. Like, I want to be a part of communicating some kind of hopefulness because I felt like at the beginning of this like so brought down like I was like literally like a ball on the floor like sobbing you know like I was so I think one of the things that hit me the most was just like what if I never get to see my grandmother again we can't visit her right now right you know if she gets infected because she's 88 and yeah. we might be carrying it asymptomatically right so none of us can see our elderly loved ones and I had this like total breakdown But as the days have gone on, like, I'm finding more and more strength in just embracing this moment. I'd love to be sitting on those press conferences. <laughs> I'd love to even just be the comedic relief or just, right. like, just to offer some warmth. Because right. I think some of these press conferences are very cold. But don't you think that's what celebrities are trying to do? No. <laughs> I think they're just, they're, they're continuing to self-aggrandize. Right. And, you know, like, I love a ridiculous celebrity moment, but I'm fed up of it. And I think that... Naomi flying. That's the only one that's really resonated <laughs> for me. Everyone watch Naomi Campbell on YouTube. Um, but, but seriously, it's like, already in just a week, so many of my more frivolous interests have become meaningless mm -hmm. to me. And I don't necessarily think it's going to be permanent, but like, I don't give a shit right now about what celebrities are doing. Like, I really Madonna don't. taking a bath. I don't. I saw it and it's horrifying. <laughs> but I honestly like I'm just so uninterested. Right. But like, I look at this and I think it's quite phenomenal that as a society we're. I mean, a lot of people are suffering. People will die. And that's obviously terrible. But I, as a society as a whole and human culture and human civilization will continue after this. Like, yes. There will be human beings here in... Absolutely. You know. This is not... I really don't... People who are like jumping to like, this is the end of days. This is an apocalypse. Shut up. Like, please. <laughs> But it's, it's funny because like, you, you're, you want to speak up. You want to be in the community. And through the... Because I... This idea of quarantine to me is very new because I'm, you know, I, I'm always out. I'm always doing things. So I'm really enjoying like shutting down the noise. But right I'm now. glad you're enjoying it because I think for people like you who are social and always on the go and rarely at home, it could be really hard. Yeah. One thing that I've been doing, like I've really gone back to phone conversations. Every few days I take an hour And I call six people. I just do 10-minute conversations with people <laughs> just to check in. And it's been really nice. Like, I started talking to my childhood best friend, like, who I haven't spoken to in years. Years. Um, so it's, you know, like, there are silver linings. Um, and 
to be honest, I spend a lot of the mornings just like sexting a lot of different guys. Nice. And just like having these like hot erotic conversations <laughs> and sending nudes. <laughs> and I can't believe how many people are still trying to hook up. So like these guys were like, are you free today? Can I come over? I'm like, are you out of your mind? I'm like, we are social distancing. No one is available right now. Stay home. And I've convinced some people. So I'm like doing the Lord's work. I have something to share with you. What? So a few days before it got crazy. Yes. Um, I took a routine STI test. Oh, okay. And a few days ago, I got a call. Oh, um, I tested positive for one. Chlamydia. Oh, my God. But I was so happy. Why? It was chlamydia and not COVID-19. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I was so, when I got the call, because, you know, they call people who were in contact with someone who tested positive. Yes. So when I got the call, I was like, please don't let it be COVID-19, oh, like someone right. I had been in touch right. with. Yes. So in that chlamydia moment. Chlamydia is much more manageable. It's more manageable. It's pretty asymptomatic. So in that moment, I, I never thought I'd be grateful to have right. chlamydia. But in that moment, I was. I sort of feel like this almost works out perfectly for my kind of sexuality, which is like, I just want to like send people my nudes and have them send me their nudes, but I don't actually <laughs> want to see them face to face. And like now that's what everyone is doing. So it kind of works to my I would, advantage. I would be so curious to see the data from porn sites. I'm sure it's, it's like through, through the roof. roof. Yeah. All right. All right. What are we going to watch? We talked to Ty Mitchell, who's also known online as Pro Bottom, a very explicit porn name. I mean, we we spoke to him the day they started to shut down things in New York City where he's based and he was able to get in the studio. I don't think he would be able to get in the studio Yeah, it was the day before things really got crazy. So it was interesting to speak to Ty because in addition to being a porn performer, he's also a really good writer. Like he writes a biweekly column for uh, MEL magazine, Mail magazine. um, And he's also written a piece for Dazed on pay rates in the porn industry. And he's kind of a Marxist Bernie supporter porn actor and he's an out gay porn actor which is also pretty rare in a world where you have a lot of gay for pay actors. Ty also had a really interesting upbringing. He grew up in the suburbs of Las Vegas which... In the 2000s. Just to to see that scene. you know. And so we were curious about how that setting might have informed his personal trajectory. I grew up, you know, driving around... Uh, residential neighborhoods and circles, eating Taco Bell and smoking hookah in garages while my parents were serving cocktails to tourists on a casino floor. Um, Sex and vice is at the total economic center of it. And so I think that that has some kind of effect on your ideas about sex and sex work more broadly. My mom wore a bustier to work every night, you know, right. a bustier and black tights to work every yeah. night. And, you know, like my best friend when I was a teenager, her roommate was a stripper. You know, like these are just kind of things that were like part of my normal day to day that I realized once I left Las Vegas are, yeah, I guess, sort of bizarre, but not the most bizarre thing. But, you know, I guess very formative to becoming a gay porn star. <laughs> right. Did you did you always enjoy having people look at you in a sexual way and fetishize you? I feel like as a young person, I really, really craved that kind of attention a lot. I came out when I was like 14 and coming out young made me really eager to fulfill that identity. Mm -hmm. You know, like when you're 14, 
you don't have a ton of access to sex the way that you do when you're 24. And do I mean, feel- not to say that it's harder to come out when you're 14. I think I'm really fortunate and privileged to have come out when I was 14 and to have been able to live pretty openly and comfortably, like, in my, you know, with my mom and everything. How old were you when you filmed your first scene? Do you remember that scene? I filmed my first scene four years ago when I was 22, It's a good age. It's not too young. Yeah, I think I'm pretty grateful that I held off because, you know, between the time I was 18 and 23, I, you know, had explored nightlife, I'd experimented with drugs, I had experimented with sex and like kind of got a certain comfort level around all these things and developed certain boundaries. My body had kind of hit in some ways a second puberty and I was feeling really excited about my sexuality and how I looked and feeling this like kind of hit this moment where I was like, I really love porn and I really, really want to be in it. So when you did finally take the leap, what was your first shoot like? My first shoot was for rawcastings.com and for Maverick Men Direct site. And I was in a rental house with maybe 10 other models for about like four or five days where they basically would, they had me scheduled with someone specific in advance. um, And then I wound up doing two more scenes with people that they just saw me having chemistry with in the house. And each shoot took about like, uh, an hour and a half or two hours to to film. Uh, yeah, that first scene was for raw castings. Like my face was in the carpet and my ass was up and he was fucking me in the ass while he had his foot pressed down against my face. <laughs> and he had just these like nasty straight guy toenails too. <laughs> um. <laughs> and you had chemistry with him. Yeah, it was iconic, and the girls ate it up, and <laughs> and and you know it was it was like it was my call me maybe. I was very proud of that. Um, Do you remember and, what you would talk about on the set with the guys? Like especially it being your first shoot, just coming in as the newbie, and I mean it was weird because it was a weird mix of like it was it was broy. It was a broy environment, and that mm. was really weird for me to be around a bunch of not just like men, but like dudes, you know, <laughs> yeah. just like kind of smoking pot, working out, playing pool. Like, I don't know. It was weird. And I haven't done that kind of production style since then. Was it nerve wracking or exhilarating? It was exhilarating. I was so into it. I was eager to prove myself. And I think that I did. <laughs> I think it sounds I, like you did. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I was hanging out with these guys who I didn't have any conflicts with anyone. Everyone was pretty easy to get along with and, and chill. Um, I would not do a situation like that again. I think that there was a lot of room in that situation for uh, risk and like shitty experiences that fortunately didn't happen. Um, do you remember in what ways it felt sort of risky or? Um, you know, that if any of those guys had, you know, thrown some kind of tantrum or gotten really fucked up or been doing drugs on the sly, I would have probably felt unsafe if anyone had, you know, I was sharing a room, I was sharing a bedroom with someone, you know, and like that just kind of creates a lot of, I think, room for risk. When you enter a set, like, do you do you feel like you have to emotionally protect yourself or you feel pretty, you have trust that, like, everything will be all right? Um, nowadays, I have a lot of comfort. You know, nowadays I know that I have a huge following. You know, I know a lot of the producers and directors in the industry now and a lot of other performers. You know, I have a lot more power than I did when I started and therefore feel a lot safer. And, like, I have a lot more access to recourse if I feel right. I've been treated badly. There is an exhibitionist side of me, that fantasy of like being objectified. And but sometimes mm. when I actually think about 
toying with the idea like there's a part of me that gets suddenly like really scared because I imagine that the reality would actually make me feel really exposed and vulnerable and I'm just curious for you like how did the reality of entering this world compare with maybe your fantasy of the world? Well, I should backpedal because so before I started sending around photos, I was experimenting a lot with camming. I think I started camming for the first time when I was like 19 and I was in college and was trying to make extra cash, but mostly was like very exhibitionistic. So I had already like been naked on the Internet by the time that I was applying to porn, which was another big thing is it was like, you know, the ship has sailed on my nudes being (laughs) findable, like... Uh, so camming was more my entry point than anything. Um, and also I was doing, you know, and I was doing other forms of sex work. So, you know, I had a rent boy profile. That was another ship that had sailed in terms of like tarnishing. Why do you, why do you say the ship has sailed? Just in terms of like ways that I could be disqualified from like public office or working with children or something like that. If somebody really wanted to dig up evidence against me, like that was already available. At least it definitely felt that way at the time. I I had no way of knowing that, you know, fast forward five, six, seven years, like it feels like everyone has nudes on the internet or somewhere. Are you here for the yoga class? Yeah. Here, it's good to meet you. Nice to meet you. Um, so with yoga, we just want to really focus on our breathing a lot. Okay. So let's just get started by like closing our eyes and doing a lot of deep breathing, okay? So just inhale, exhale. Like this? Okay, so you're gonna need to maybe move your feet out a little bit so I can get in here and twist those hips. As a porn actor, are you drawn to things that give you a storyline and a character? Like, do you like having that sort of aspect of expressing yourself creatively? Well, when I first started doing porn, I was really hopeful that I would get to be involved in really kind of avant-garde, like, creative, artsy-fartsy porn that was, like, really getting big around the time, I think, with Cocky Boys. There were Black Spark videos on Tumblr. There was I Want Your Love. There were, like, all these kind of examples that I really wanted to be involved in of, like, this kind of artful porn. And I couldn't really, like, attract the attention of the filmmakers who were doing that kind of work. So I've found out I really give good funny faces and I (laughs) am really good at like crossing my eyes and having them pop out of my head in the sidebar of an ad. And so I've wound up um, finding my niche in these kinds of zany, wacky, plot heavy pornos that in my view, resemble a lot of, like, the sitcoms that we grew up with. Right. Um, so you're kind of like the Jennifer Aniston of porn, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I'm like the Jennifer Aniston. I'm like the, t- I'm like the Tim the Toolman Taylor of porn. <laughs> so when you were watching these, I, it just brought me back when you mentioned Black Spark. It was, how would we describe it? It was sort of DIY bedroom porn, maybe produced like 10, 12 years ago. Yeah, and it was all done in iMovie very blatantly, and it was all, like, mood lighting. and. But what was striking about it is it was, like, the type of, like, jacked all-American jock that you would see on Sean Cody or Corbin Fisher, usually some kind of mask or bandana or something. That's that you would never see their face. I remember that. That was really the sort of... Uh, initial wave of what you're describing as this more like artsy DIY porn. I mean, today there's so many performers like you and Francois Sagat, and there was Mm -hmm. Colby Keller, obviously, Sam Morris, Matthew Camp. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you feel it's just an aesthetic or it's actually a political statement to make porn this way today? Um, I have mixed feelings. What I really liked about 
um, like what Black Spark was doing and what I've always really appreciated about the way I think Francois kind of looks at porn too is that a lot of people say, I want to make art porn. I want to make artsy porn. I want to do porn, but make it artful. And when they do that, they are distancing themselves from pornography and they're basically trying to say like I want to do sexual content but make it artful and in doing so they deny the fact that there can already be much that's artful about sexual content and and pornography like it reproduces this hierarchy wherein pornography is a low genre that is void of art already and what I really appreciate that people do is to make porn that's stylized as opposed to like art that has butt fucking (laughs) I want to talk about the industry itself. So you work both independently selling your own content followers and you also work with bigger studios. And I'm just curious about how you sort of navigate those two worlds and what are some of the advantages to each? Well, so I have had a somewhat unusual career with porn because I've never been signed to work exclusively with any studios. Um, So I've been a free agent my whole career and have been quite literally passed around um, uh, across the industry. And I, and I have a few friends who are in a similar position to me. But um, So the industry still works in a way that's very old Hollywood. Like you're, if you're an actor, you're attached to a studio and you're going to work with the same studio for a, a number of years. Yes. Contracts are commonly about six months. Okay. Um, but people often renew them. And it's unclear like how obsolete that might be be becoming now that um, so many people are on OnlyFans because the studios are just simply not booking people often enough and paying us enough to support a living um, such that we can opt out of selling content on OnlyFans and Just for Fans. We might Um, have listeners who have no idea what OnlyFans and Just for Fans is. Um, I mean, I can explain because I'm paying for porn on Just for (laughs) Fans. Yeah, sending a few bucks uh, (laughs) to a few performers every month. So it's kind of a private channel. You have to pay to even access like a preview clip in my experience. Like you can't really see what the performer has been posting and there are pictures, videos. It's a lot like being an influencer, like a YouTuber. You would have collaborations with other channels. Um, But how does that change the relationship with the fans? Like do people feel that they can message you directly or that you owe them something if they they pay you every month? Um, When you are a sex worker or, I don't know, just a naked person more broadly, people are always going to feel like uh, you Mm. owe them something. (laughs) You know, so... How do you put a boundary? um, I ignore people. (laughs) 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 And I don't feel bad about it. I don't know. I I haven't had a particularly demanding following or I feel you have cool fans. I think that's why. Yeah, um, I have cool fans, but I think I also have broke fans. I think my demographic <laughs> is largely like grad students. And yeah. <laughs> Bernie supporters. We'll get Bernie back supporters. To that. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm, I'm definitely a porn star of the working class. I've never been that good at endearing rich people to me. I guess. <laughs> so this is my boyfriend Todd. Hey, 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 I'm Nate. That's great to meet you. Nice to meet you too. So much about you. Yeah, same. Um, um, so yeah. yeah, thanks for uh, signing up with Brad. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to meeting him. Do you work with uh, gay for pay performers? Yeah, I work, I work with gay for pay performers all the time. Especially when I was first starting out, I was often paired with very amateur gay for pay guys. And I've learned a lot about working class and blue collar sexualities. And I've learned a lot about places What, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? Just like some guy who's like working class who's going to, is straight but is going to do porn? Is that what you mean? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that labels like queer and sexually fluid are not 
words that like really reach a lot of like really poor straight rural communities like I've worked with a lot of guys who identify as straight or have even toyed with the idea of identifying as like bi or or pansexual um but who like their 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 lives are constituted by straight people and straight things and you know like I, I I've met I've learned from a lot of these guys that like them identifying as gay wouldn't really help them a lot of the gay for pay guys are not in a closet okay let me explain this differently yeah I've worked with a lot of guys who are comfortable having gay sex who even like love sucking cock and love having dicks in their ass um, a lot of gay for pay guys really like trans women for example and that doesn't necessarily mean they're not straight and so I've learned from a lot of these men that what makes a person closeted isn't the fact that they have gay desires. What makes a person closeted is that they have enough gay desire that it sends them into a crisis. Right. <laughs> That's so interesting. Do you think that because obviously porn sort of plays up on some of those stereotypes like you know, there's porn that like really wants you to believe that someone is super straight or yeah. super gay or whatever it is. Do you think porn sort of has the ability to reach those audiences and sort of teach them that vocabulary of pansexual and opening up your identity? Or do you think porn works to enforce, you know, more rigid labels that these guys have been taught? Um, like, I kind of see it both ways. Like, even if you just go on to they something like Pornhub. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like there's so many labels that, like, porn is so categorized. But at the same time, like, especially now, there are so many cool porn stars like you who are, like, using your platform to really say something. I guess I'm just curious about, like, where you think the industry is headed in terms of openness or sort of reinforcing stereotypes. Well, I know a lot of the people in my industry have had really different experiences with fans who get very vitriolic around whether someone's straight or not. It's, it's really weird. Like, there's a lot of guys who consider themselves bisexual, who consider themselves queer and sexually fluid, and when they demonstrate that online, like, you know, if they post videos of them with women or if they do buy studio porn, um, they get, like, really harshly trolled by a lot of gay porn fans. Like, what's really specific about gay porn is neither this fetish for straight men nor a fetish for gay sex, but a fetish for men who are in this weird doorway of the closet and the erotics of straight identified men who are caught um, exhibiting a repressed desire and this framework of a closet and the pornography recording that like moment of the closet being a failure or something like that is like I think something that gets er that is eroticized over and over and over again by porn and especially by porn viewers and so when they are dismayed about gay porn stars hooking up with women I think it comes from feeling that that specific erotic moment has been violated to them mm. I don't know it's like if you know being out and gay and happy about it is not hot in a way. <laughs> right. it's not sexually attractive you don't want to jerk off to that yeah and I think that you know 
uh, this scholar Linda Williams writes about straight porn being this like uh, frenzy of the visible and so much of it has to do with seeing things that cannot be seen like the female orgasm for example um, as like being this this thing that we're like that that film is trying really really desperately to see and making all of these kinds of weird maneuvers to like make a spectacle out of right I think gay porn is doing something similar but different around um, closets and repressed sexuality and desire and I think a lot of the porn that I'm in definitely um, is taking place in this like fantasy world in which there is no sexual identity um, except in maybe uh, like offhanded like wait but I'm straight you know well one thing that I think is really interesting that's happening is that for so long, even though porn is so widely consumed, it's sort of hypocritically remained underground. I mean, I read that like nine men out of ten watch porn. Yeah. And I think it's probably really accurate. Yeah. And, one and a woman third out, of, out yeah. of women. And so like there's always been this sort of hypocrisy around porn and that like so many of us consume it, but we're sort of like consuming it secretly. But now like with OnlyFans and the idea of people sort of having to like produce their sex life on social media it's becoming more and more mainstream it's like even kim kardashian has a super like porn star aesthetic which we never really saw celebrities do before and i'm just curious what your take on that is like do you think that we all kind of have this like secret desire to be porn stars because i feel like it's that idea of like producing your sex life is is trickling down to like everyone's everyday life everyone wants to present this image that they're like getting it all the time and that they're hot i don't know i think there's something kind of toxic about that too at the same time well i think that like there was already something deeply pornographic about instagram i mean i think there was already something very exhibitionist about social media in the first place and this like imperative that we make visible what was previously not like i think that sex work has always been more common than any of us can measure or recognize it's just now very visible to us Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm DeLon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Something that's so interesting about you is that obviously you you enjoy making porn, but also you have this whole side of yourself where you're an active voice for social justice and anti-capitalism. Why did you want to use your voice to talk about pay and talk about unions? You know, like I don't know if a lot of porn performers or people in that industry talk about labor conditions. Um, yeah, I mean, I, we're kind of like Uber drivers in the sense that we don't often get to talk with the people who do the same job as us about our job. Right. Um, we had a pretty long award season this winter that was like a week and a half with like two to three major award shows. And so it was a ton of us all kind of in the same couple hotels for like 10 days. And um, one of the takeaways was about the... Uh, huge range in which we're getting paid and how certain sometimes studios can be very predatory with taking advantage of amateur models not knowing what those standards are the fact that there's no real place for us to talk about what those standards are should be um so i wrote the piece for days about performer pay rates and 
let's say I watch like a studio scene, like how much is a gay performer getting paid for that? Um, I mean, you know, like when you're watching any any given porno, and and it's weird too because certain studios appear to be much bigger and grander than they actually are. They, well, they the word like studio is studios. misleading because the word studio makes it sound like it's <laughs> freaking paramount. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're definitely studios. I, I worked for studios before where people were like, wow, you're, you're working with, with them? That's that's a huge deal. And it's like one dude, you know? Like, like, <laughs> so how much would you get paid for like a, a scene with a studio like anything, that? It can be anything. People get paid anything from $400 a scene, which is abysmal, to two two and a half grand if okay. they're you know in extremely high demand um my friend joey mills he tweeted about how like we should really come to a consensus that like a thousand is should be like a minimum mm-hmm. standard um it's always tricky to talk about these things on twitter because there's so much caveat to that you know right. like if i had been a different place in my career and saw that seen that tweet, I would have been like, easy for you to fucking say. Like you're a you're a super popular like twink porn star who's studded with awards and has this huge fan base. Like, yeah, you can ask for a thousand. Most people in the industry feel that way, especially if they're people of color, especially if they're HIV positive, especially if they're older, especially if they don't have a six pack, you know? You feel and you're made to feel as though you're completely replaceable all the time. Because you you are. Um, writing that piece was a way that I felt like I could take a stand and I hope that anyone who's considering doing gay porn reads it. And a lot of people assume that we are making as much money as porn stars made in the 90s. Um, and a lot of people are just totally unaware that we are, most of us, living like scene to scene. What do you think porn can tell us really about ourselves and society today? <laughs> It's a big question. I don't know that it has to, you know? And one of the things I kind of push back on, because there are a lot of people who are like, porn should be uh, taking a stronger responsibility and role in educating people about sex. And there's too many toxic messages in, in, in porn. And I I don't think that we should rely on um, what are ultimately companies that belong to a private sector that is unaccountable to the public to teach people about sex. And um, I think that porn de facto is one of the ways that we learn about sex. But I think that porn is has no obligation to educate people any greater than the rest of media and other genres have an obligation to educate people. So um, what I want people to get from gay porn is a really strong orgasm more than anything. <laughs> Ty Mitchell, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having thank me. Thank you. Good Take luck, care. stay safe in the madness. Bye-bye. Writer and porn actor Ty Mitchell. Ty writes a bi weekly column in Mail magazine called This Could Be Us. The latest is on polyamory and socialism. Your two I- favorite things. <laughs> Ty's professional Instagram is at ProBottom. His personal account is at TyMitchellXO. And on Twitter, he is TyMitchellXXX. Obsession. Obsession. What are you obsessed with? What am I obsessed with? Do you even have an obsession this week? Believe it or not, I do. Um, (laughs) Although I have to say, you know, like when it comes to the things that have normally brought me entertainment, I'm not fully experiencing them the same way. So like I haven't really been able to sit down and read a book. I can't focus. Even listening to music, it's not really doing much for me. And watching Netflix and whatever, I'm like kind of zoning out. But 
Um, there is a new show on Netflix. It's called Feel Good, and it was co-created and co-written by a really brilliant comedian, Mae Martin. You, you've performed with her Yeah, before. I got to perform with her two years ago, just for last. Um, She's a Canadian who lives in the UK? Exactly. Is that it? Okay. Yeah. She's queer. The show is semi-autobiographical. And I have to say, like, there were moments of watching the show and any show that I've been watching, really, where it feels almost weird to be watching people go to bars, have relationships. So the show is really about a comedian living a normal life. Exactly. I mean, it's It's our it's what our life was. (laughs) Hi, guys. I'm from Canada. I came over in a canoe recently with Celine Dion. Hi. 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 I've never been on a date with a girl. It's so well acted. It's so well directed. Um, Lisa Kudrow plays <gasps> Mae Martin's mom. Okay. And honestly, she is so good in this. Like, she is as riveting in this as she is on the comeback. Oh, wow. Um, she just gives this, like, hilarious performance, really but it's so it nuanced. Okay. Lisa Kudrow's... Because the show, the, the irony is, like, usually when comedians are given a show that they get to build around their own stage persona and their own lives and make something autobiographical, it, you know, it tends to be, like, really funny. But May's show is, like, very emotional, and it deals with a lot of heavy issues, like addictions, and May's character is sort of constantly running away from herself. You know, mm. she's in a lot of denial about her own addiction issues and where she's at in her recovery and what her capacity is to love. And I just feel that, you know, as we're all self-isolating, this is a moment where as hard as it's going to be, we're also going to be confronting ourselves and who we are. And we don't have that many places to escape to right now. So I found the show really poignant in that sense. It's like we do have to – this is the moment that we've been given to really look at ourselves and not run away. Oh, my God. I'll definitely watch yeah. it. Yeah. What about you? What are you obsessed with? Well, at first I was obsessed with house tours on Architectural Digest's uh, YouTube <laughs> channel because <laughs> I was just, I just wanted to, like, picture celebrities in quarantine. And look, they're, like... if we were all being quarantined on compounds where we had our own pools and tennis courts, we'd be fine. That's it. So, you know, I, that it entertained me fast. for like a day, but then that wasn't enough. Um, I don't know about you. Do you have a big pile of books to read in your house? You know what? When I was Marie Kondoing my life, right. I got rid of so many books that I hadn't read because I thought I would never read them. Right. Big mistake. Because <laughs> now you big. could. Mistake. So I have so many books because I buy more books than I read. It's just like math. Um, (laughs) And there's one that I've wanted to read for months. And I feel the timing is so perfect. The title is How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Uh, The writer is Jenny O'Dell. She is an artist, writer, teacher who lives in Oakland. Um, And she just like recaps how after the election in 2016 and after there was a big uh, fire in a art loft that killed over 30 people. And she just like takes us back to like how empty she felt and how she wasn't able to focus and feel and concentrate on the things that were important to her. Um, But it's not written in a way that's like, you know, put your cell phone down. So is it a memoir or is it more instructional? It's part memoir, uh, part self-helpy, but also part, you know, she's using quotes from artists and philosophers. And she just takes us to this this physical place. It's a rose garden in Oakland where she has spent a lot of time away from the digital world, away from the computer, away from the phone to kind of re- 
connect to that sense of concentration and focus and feeling. And she describes how she was eventually able to hear the birds in that space. I mean, it sounds very Portlandia, but she, she was <laughs> able to hear the birds in that space. She became able to differentiate the types of birds and right. sort of really shift her focus. So she describes how that process, she, you know, she's brought it to her all life and how, you know, she realized she didn't need to be connected all the time. She didn't need to have every moment of every day be productive or, right. you know, and that she needed time to know what was actually really important to her. Um, I'm kind of a third way in, so okay. I don't know exactly the answers right. that she found, right. but I'm sort of... But this sounds really great. Like, I think this is what a lot of us need right now. Like, even for me, like, I know that in my isolation, and I've been doing it slowly already, but, like, I, I need to cut back on the online time because it's not really serving. It's so unproductive right now. Usually I use social media for my work, mm -hmm. you know, but there's no work right now. So I love the idea of doing that. Also, I think that, like... You know, we're so trained to associate our worth with our productivity. That's the thing. Even that tweet that went viral, you know, being like, you know, when Shakespeare was in isolation, he wrote <laughs> King Lear. And then there was this enormous backlash being like, can you just let us be unproductive right yeah. now? Like, we are so overwhelmed. But this could be a moment, you know, for us to reconnect to those things and learn to be okay in silence. Yeah, because I still, you know, I still see this shallow side of, of myself where I'm like, oh, I should get in shape, do like workouts. Me too. In my I've apartment. had these fantasies that I'm going to get like a JLo body, <laughs> uh, like in a month. <laughs> or like start the keto diet, finally. Yeah. Get it, finally. Yeah, you but know? I, let's be realistic. So I think this is, you know, I'm, I'm just a third way in, but this is, you know, the kind of life changing that you're like, oh, this is going to yes. stay with me. So I'm really like taking my time. Uh, How to Do Nothing, a Jenny O'Dell. And if you want to read more about our obsessions, we still have a column with Daily Extra. We do. And it's fabulous. You can check it out at dailyextra.com. That's dailyxtra.com. What else are you going to do? <laughs> Chosen Family is produced by me, Thomas LeBlanc. And me, Trana Winter, with Crystal Duhame. Crystal also edits and mixes the show. Big thanks to Jérémy Romain. Chosen Family's music is by The Lost Boys. Judy Zigu is our digital producer. Tanya Springer is the senior producer of CBC Podcasts. And Arif Nirani is the executive producer. And also, if you haven't already, please join our Facebook page. I mean, Thomas has deleted his Facebook profile, but I'm still there. If you have questions about the show, about behind the scenes, or anything you want to ask, I'll be checking in. So come join us. Chosen Family is a CBC podcast originally developed in association with Fi Studio. Listen to Chosen Family wherever you get your podcasts. And take care of yourselves out there. Stay home as much as you possibly can. You should only be leaving home for going to the grocery store. That's it. The more seriously we take this, the shorter amount of time it will last. And you can quote Patty on that. Patty, the health minister, my new best friend. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.